1: hi
2: hi there we go
1: can you see me
2: no no i can't see you
1: good because i look awful
2: (laughs) don't worry we're not we're not doing a video call we're just doing it to your mobile um what are you doing right now
1: sitting smoking feeling stressed wondering what the point of me not throwing myself out the window is
2: (laughs) you live on the ground floor anyway so it doesn't matter um anyway i've got um i've got some good news Yeah, Um, I could do with some. Well, that's good, because I've got some. Because
1: my life is absolute shit.
2: Mum, shut up. Stop being weird. Um, So I have, well, not just me, you know, me and and my team. Uh, When lockdown started, um, you know, we were looking into... I'll just come out and say it. We found Natasha. And we've made contact with her uh, and spoken to her.
1: Well, I don't believe it. Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Are you sure it's her?
2: Yeah, we've spoken to her. And she said that, of course, she remembers you. and She
1: saved my life.
2: Yeah. Well, we found her. And she's fine and well.
1: Oh, I'm so glad. Did you see her?
2: I've seen pictures of her.
1: does she look like
2: she looks a lot like the um the one sort of grainy picture you have of her as a teenager i mean she's well she's uh lives in st petersburg
1: did she marry and have children
2: i don't know i don't know i haven't spoken to her yet um my oh
1: my god i can't believe it i couldn't believe it I love that girl. She she came to the hospital when I was just dumped there, put in an isolation room. She took all those risks and she, she saw me through the window and she put her finger to her mouth, shush. And she came and she opened the door and she got me out. Oh, my God. Oh, I hope she's had a happy life.
2: Well, you'll find out soon.
1: When you talk to her, I want you to tell her that if it wasn't for her, you would not be here.
2: (laughs) I will tell her that. Yeah, I'll tell her. The
1: truth. I was so ill. Their idea of treating me in a Soviet hospital in 1974 was to starve me.
2: Well, look, Mark, so I'm going to speak to her and I'll connect you to her really soon. But yeah, I just wanted to tell you that obviously we found her, she's alive, she's well. She still works in ballet. She actually is a professor at the Vaganova. No! Yeah, yeah. Oh, my
1: God. Oh, my God. She she became a ballet teacher.
2: I think she... She was she,
1: a, just a secretary. She was working in the school and she had a passion for ballet.
2: She's a professional in some capacity, but like I said, look, I, I haven't spoken to her yet. Only my colleague Olga has, but...
1: So I would come into your office to do like a Zoom call or something, wouldn't I? Is that how we'd do it? Because I can't sort of do it from my end. It's bloody impossible on this stupid, bloody iPad. I feel like throwing it on the...
2: I'm not sure it's all the iPad's fault, but... Yes, that would be okay. very tricky.
1: Well, of course it's a bloody iPad for, how can it be not the iPad for?
2: Right, Ma-
1: you're the cleverest boy in the world and that's given me a real boost because I honestly was sitting here thinking I was just going to throw myself out the window. But now I think, actually, I really want to see Natasha. Jeez oh, Because it was still such a horrific memory I just blanked it for decades. I wanted to just make sure she's alright, and if she needs anything, you know, then I can. It's my opportunity to repair. But it sort of sounds like what you say that she probably doesn't need anything. It sounds like maybe she's made a good life. I really hope that's the okay. case. Anyway, that's amazing, darling. What can I say? If you want to make a podcast, you can, darling. If any, you think anyone would be interested. In my stupid poor life, but uh, the point, the point is, I didn't go on and become a successful ballerina, did I? <laughs> Sorry, I'm going
2: to No, no, look, this is a big emotional thing. I, I didn't think...
1: even know where the cafeteria was, where that awful food was, and I wandered around.
2: Well, look. she's
1: the kindest, sweetest human
2: being I ever met.
1: And she did it taking real risks, which people today can't possibly understand because they don't understand the world. It was, it was full of suspicion and fear and all the other girls have been told to have nothing to do with me. Anyway, sorry, I'm just so overwhelmed.
2: Don't worry about it, Ma. I'll, I'll ring you and speak to you in a bit, OK? Just, you know, let it digest for a little bit, OK? Yeah.
3: From Message Heard, this is Finding Natasha.
2: I love you, Mum. Bye.
3: I'm Jake Warren. So after Natasha came to get my mum out of the hospital, they walked out through the back door and onto a snowy field. They got very lucky that no one saw them.
0: She snuck me out. A huge risk to herself. And we walked across the snowy field with me crying, as usual, and her gabbling in Russian, obviously telling me to be brave and to stop it. And I did understand some words. She said she was taking me home to her mama, which she did indeed. And we had to wait by a bus stop. And when the bus arrived, the doors opened. And it was literally like sardines in a tin. And I was incredibly weak and... uh, Barely stand, and I remember her looking extremely worried and saying, We've got no choice' and she shoved me into this bus and held me up. Obviously no seats. And we were on that bus, I don't know how long, until we arrived at where her elderly parents' flat was in one of these huge Soviet blocks,
3: and there, waiting for them was Natasha's mother,
0: so sweet. She must have been scared, really, for Natasha for a bit of a risk turning up at that time with a western girl in half dead and she put me to bed and her mother made me some soup and i felt warm and i felt safe
3: they took her in natasha's mother cooked for mum and she even slept in natasha's own bed
0: i used to say to her you'll get in trouble you'll get in trouble but you know with this selfishness of uh, scared needy person i i said it but i just was just so grateful and she had no intention of abandoning me
3: this was a regime where according to the officials who were preparing mum before the trip people could be in danger just for having western currency on them and so natasha's family knew they were taking a huge risk they were showing mum more care than the british government who sent her to russia ever did but at the end of the day the british were the only ones who could get her home safely
0: And Natasha said to me, I've got to go, and I didn't want her to go. She promised me she'd come back. And Natasha went to the British consulate in Leningrad, and she said to them, you need to know the English girl is very sick.
3: A little while later, Natasha came back.
0: And she said to me, they know they're arranging for you to go home. You can go to an English hospital and you'll get well. And uh, she was the instrument of it all. British Council never visited me. They never contacted me. But they obviously arranged my flights. And Natasha had access in the office at the school. She got my passport.
3: Just like that, this was all about to end. Yes, she was dangerously ill and terrified. Relieved that she'd be able to go to a hospital back home. But leaving also meant that her big Russian ballet dream was about to slip away, along with the one person who she felt any closeness to
0: back then. And she got a taxi to her mother's flat, and she helped me get dressed. I had nothing, no bag, but she had got my sheepskin coat from the dormitory. I'd had a little space where I had a few things hung up one was the very expensive sheets coat that my dad had bought me she bought that and uh, whatever else she could find and obviously my passport she had the tickets and she took me in the taxi to the airport and uh, we walked into the airport and i remember the guards literally as we were going through passport control they tapped me on the shoulder and said something to me in russian and natasha said to me you have to take your coat off they want the coat let them have it. So, I mean, I couldn't have cared less. I was just so desperate to get out. When I took the coat off, I handed it to one of the guards. They looked me over to see if there was anything else worth taking, whether I had a watch or anything, which I didn't. And then I remember looking at her and she said to me, now you go through and I can't go any further. And I had nothing to give her. All I had was these little gold sleepers in my ears.
3: They were simple gold earrings.
0: So I quickly took them out of my ears and I said, I have nothing else to give you and I owe you everything and I'll never, never forget what you've done. And we hugged each other. And I did think then, God, I hope she doesn't get into terrible trouble.
3: This moment was the last time that my mum had ever seen Natasha. There were no direct flights from Leningrad to London back then and so she had to fly through Stockholm. And when she finally touched down in London, despite my grandparents' ugly divorce, they both came to pick her up at the airport.
0: I remember my mother bursting into tears when she saw me.
3: They were completely in the dark about what it had been like for her in Russia, other than a few letters mum sent to my grandmother, to which, by the way, she never got a reply. And so they had no idea just how sick mum really was. All three of them only realised once she saw a doctor back home.
0: I was in Guy's Hospital, I had to be treated, I had hepatitis. And I was also, they said to my parents, I was suffering from malnutrition. Hardly surprising. The doctor said to my mother when I was in Guy's, she's very sick. And if she had stayed in that Soviet hospital with no nutrition and no medical intervention, she I could have died. I mean, he basically said to my mother, thank God I got out when I did because it would have been a very bad (laughs) scenario.
3: Once the doctors diagnosed her with hepatitis, she was able to start getting treatment. It was going to take months before she'd be strong enough to dance again. But getting back to ballet wasn't at the top of her mind anymore. That's coming up after a short
0: break. The overwhelming feeling I had at that time, apart from feeling ill, was one of failure, really. Absolute, utter failure, you know, because I'd sort of gone off in this golden blaze of this great dream. And of course, I came back this sick, scared, very, very unhappy girl who realised that I certainly was never going to be one of those great Russian dancers. My dream was in tatters. I felt humiliated in a way. I'd put everything into this dream. Of course, looking back, it's all so stupid. And The worst thing, I think, was the fact, you know, I didn't have the backup when I got back because obviously my parents were going through this divorce. My father had left home and, in fact, he was now living with someone else and about to become a father again. And my mother was very unhappy and very stressed. Uh, she often bed with her nerves.
3: Mum returned to a home that was just as dysfunctional as the one she'd left. Her parents treated her as they always had. What she'd gone through didn't seem to make much of a difference to them.
0: I just remember being, when I finally got home, very isolated and very lonely. And the only way I could deal with it was by blocking it out.
3: And these few months, I think, were so important for what came next. It seems that this is when mum internalised that feeling of being a failure and the shame that came with it.
0: And, uh, yeah, hepatitis is a horrible thing, really. You have all sorts of horrible side effects. Depression's one of them, which didn't help, on top of feeling the world's biggest failure. And my parents' dreadful divorce and everything else. So I was a pretty miserable, mixed-up young girl.
3: But once she managed to get better physically, she thought that maybe she could try going back to ballet. That was how she'd always coped before.
0: And I didn't really start dancing again for about six months. I lost so much muscle. I was just incredibly weak, incredibly weak. I went back to class to Anna Northcote, my teacher, who was absolutely, I remember her face when she first saw me in the classroom one of absolute shock at how weak I was and I couldn't do anything and I think she uh, she was pretty upset and shocked. <laughs> I think what happened was it's like in a love relationship you sort of know that it's over or you know that the dreams you had for this person or this relationship or in my case this career are over because and this, you know, this is a bad thing, really. It's just, I think it's a sign of arrogance. You know, I always loathed mediocrity and I never want, I always thought, you know, if I can't be really good, I don't want to do it. I, I just, I think the reality check of me seeing these wonderful dancers, same age as me, something died in me something just died in me. And ballet is not the sort of thing you can do half-heartedly, particularly if physically you're under par, you know. And I fought to get back my strength and I never really did. And I think mentally I had so many issues which weren't dealt with. You know, I didn't really have anybody to talk to and I buried everything. So I was such a mess because it was so surreal. I thought nobody would really understand or even believe me if I started to say some of the things that I'd lived through or witnessed. Or It just was easier to just not talk about it, really. And also, every time I did sort of think about it or mention it, I just, as I say, I just felt this feeling of absolute wretched failure. I
3: feel like it makes so much sense that this is how my mum dealt with what happened in Russia. It's pretty much exactly how her father coped with his past. But there is a small difference, and it's the thing that makes me most sad about all this. Rather than setting her sights on the future, she got stuck in this narrative of her life that started all the way back when she returned from Russia. One, all about her not being good enough, and about being a disappointment to anyone who ever saw any potential in her. And eventually, ballet became a symbol of this story to her, so it became easier to let it go.
0: I mean, I did go on and dance for a few years, but my heart was not in it. And years later, when I was, you know, I married and had a different life and blah, blah, I never wanted to go to the ballet. I never wanted to listen to music. And I just sort of, as I say, it's like a relationship. You never want to see that person again. You don't want to be reminded of broken dreams. But with the expanse of time that went and I now love, love to go to the ballet. I love to watch the great dancers and and the young people today, the young dancers today are
3: incredible. For years, mum remained silent about her trauma. But then she got older, she built a family of her own and slowly she started feeling safe to open up. It was when I was born in 1990 that she shared parts of the story with her brother. I asked him how he felt when she finally told him.
4: The immediate questions that certainly popped into my mind is why am I only finding this out now? Why didn't mum ever speak to me about this even if Debbie for understandable reasons didn't want to? Uh, Why didn't dad ever mention it? It was clearly a seminal moment in a sadly seminal moment in her life. The fact that she nearly died of hepatitis, the fact that she came back absolutely skeletal By all accounts, this is significant stuff. Nobody told me. She didn't tell me. My parents didn't tell me. Then, the corollary of this, of course, is does this reflect on me? I remember thinking, is this some failure in my personality such that they think, well, why bother to tell Nicky? Because he wouldn't be interested anyway.
3: Over the last few decades, Mum's story took on a life of its own in our family. None of us knew all the details. Natasha was just a mysterious distant figure. We had no clue why she meant so much to mum. And I wasn't the only one who tried tracking her down. Because he felt guilty that his sister didn't feel like she could trust him with her pain, Uncle Nick wanted to help ease it.
4: Perhaps that's what spurred me on to think, right, I must find this girl if I possibly can. Where do I begin? Shall I write to the Russian embassy and say, please help me? But back
3: then, before the days of the internet, it was an impossible task. Natasha was a girl with a very common name in a very big country and on the other side of the world. And that's the way it stayed, until last year that is, when just after the pandemic started and I moved back to my mum's to keep her company during lockdown, I finally started seriously looking for her. And I never imagined that it would only be a few weeks between getting in touch with Olga Kuzmenkova and mum speaking to Natasha for the first time since 1974. Albeit, on Zoom.
2: You are gonna attempt any Russian? No,
0: because I don't speak any Russian. I only ever had a few words, and it's 46 years ago, and I blanked whatever I had.
2: Dad always said that you were really good at swearing in Russian.
0: Years ago. Well, I'm not gonna do that.
2: Is this the first Zoom call you've ever done?
0: I've never done a Zoom call before.
2: It's a day of double excitement.
0: Well. Shock and horror that I'm just looking at myself thinking, Who on earth is that woman with a huge nose that looks like a potato? (laughs) Well, trust me, when you get to my age, you've just got to get higher and higher and higher. Well, it's sort of of all right until you're 50, or then it just goes hard.
2: Hi, Natasha.
0: Hello. Oh, my
1: God. Oh, Oh, my God.
3: Hear Natasha's side of the story on the final episode of Finding Natasha. It's in this feed right now. Finding Natasha is a Message Heard production. It's hosted by me, Jake Warren, and produced by Sandra Ferrari and Jake Otayevich. Edited by Jake Otayevich, and executive produced by Sandra Ferrari. A huge thank you goes to Olga, our Russian BI extraordinaire without whom we'd never have found Natasha. And the theme music is by Matt Huxley.